Amen. We're in James chapter 1. It's our first day. We've got a lot of scripture to cover, so be on your toes. We're going to do all of verse 1, okay? It's going to be a real challenge this morning. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would anoint this time, that you would speak to us through the power of your Spirit. Lord, we believe this word is living and active. Paul called it the breath of the Spirit, the breath of God. So we surrender this time. We ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to come and apply this word to our hearts. Come on, tell him, I want to love you more this morning, Jesus. We want to love you more. We want to love you with all our hearts. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, again, we're going to look solely at verse 1, which I know seems small. But there's a theme here that we miss, and I, I thought no better day than today to take the time to explore it. Um, and honestly, the, the last several weeks, the Lord's been moving in my heart on a few issues. I want to kind of lay it before you today. I've been looking, you guys know me, I just get interested in things and go off on it. And I've been looking in the last several months at some of the healing evangelists from the, the 30s and 40s and 50s, Jack Coe and Oral Roberts. And you guys know that, you know, I've certainly got some theological difference with those people, but I wanted, just wanted to explore it and learn and hear. And um, I got stuck on this A.A. Allen. Do you remember A.A. Allen from the 40s and 50s? This, uh, this story from his life where A.A. Allen says that he was an Assembly of God pastor um, and said that he really believed in the power of the Spirit. He really believed in the gifts of the Spirit, that God still healed the sick, but he virtually saw none of it in his life. And um, he said, I, I believed in the power of God, but I didn't have the power of God. And there are seasons in my life where I can really relate to that. Like, I believe so much in God's power to redeem, restore, to speak prophetically, to heal the sick. And then there are seasons where I just don't feel like I'm seeing it, you know. So he said he was grieved for months and months and months. And um, he said to the Lord that he, he wasn't going to leave his closet to eat, to use the bathroom, to do anything. He was not going to leave the closet until the Lord spoke to him um, concerning the lack of power in his ministry. Uh, he said he doesn't know how long he was in the closet. It was some time before he had some kind of encounter with Jesus. He says he has an encounter with the risen Lord where Jesus explains to him like several issues in his life that are, that are suppressing his ministry, issues of sin, areas where he's not walking in the spirit. And he wrote it in a little book, um, called something, something in the power of the spirit. Um, I don't remember what the book's called. <laughs> I read it. No, I don't remember what it was called. Um, but he wrote in a, in a chapter um, on Romans 12, verse 1, uh, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And, and he wrote, uh, A. Allen writes, that to be a living sacrifice is to be willing to be exalted, to be willing for God to use you in miraculous ways, significant ways. But he said, but the sacrifice is also willing to be humiliated. The sacrifice is willing to spend its life serving the simple, the sick, and the broken. A living sacrifice is ready to be mocked, ready to be belittled, 
Sacrifices have no dignity. Sacrifices have no real sense of self-worth or ego. Sacrifices on the altar have one purpose, to worship. So, according to Romans 12.1, that we're to present our bodies. We've talked about this before. The word for body, soma, the, the idea of presenting your body as a living sacrifice means everything that happens in this chunk of flesh. Right, like my mind, my energy, my heart, the way I spend my free time, like all, every activity that exists while I'm in this tent must be a sacrifice. So from there, we come to the conclusion that we're, we're willing to, we must be willing to go to the nations and preach the gospel. We must be willing to go to prison and sit on our hands and live a life of fasting and intercession. We must be willing to give him our downtime, our hobbies, our energy. We must be willing to be embarrassed. If we were going to draw a theme of my life, if I could draw a theme of my life, which is, I've certainly not attained this goal. I'd like to be able to say on my last day that my life was a living sacrifice unto Christ. Now, as we turn to the book of James, I want to uncover a theme that is largely just kind of passed over in our day. It's a simple concept, um, but I'm going to take as much time as I would like to express it, okay? There's liberal scholarship that debates uh, the authorship of every epistle. You need to know that. You get commentary. Every epistle's authorship is going to be debated. <clears throat> but church history has always taught that this epistle was written by a man named James the Just, or sometimes he's called Camel Need James. This is James, the half-brother of Christ Jesus and the brother of Jude. He's called James the Just throughout history. I'll show you an occasion later. Um, and even we're going to see Josephus, who is this early Jewish historian who wasn't a Christian, refers to James as James the Just. He had this reputation in Jerusalem in the first century as being a man of great righteousness, great integrity. And so throughout this epistle, we're going to find that James kind of gives this um, this holiness call, these constant kind of pithy statements calling us to righteousness. It's going to read a lot more like Proverbs than a letter from Paul in that Paul's reasoning is line by line. He's building a case like a good lawyer, um, like a good philosopher. But but James reads like Proverbs, you know, where the, the theme can kind of change really quick on you. It can almost feel circular. Like there are many times where James is talking about the tongue in chapter 2, but then in chapter 5, he's going to give us a whole other lecture about the tongue, the way we should tame the tongue. But James the just, imagine this, wants to remind the church to live righteous, to live holy. Now, it's very likely that James, some believe that the book of James is the earliest written in the New Testament. Some say Mark, but the book of James is written very early, around the year AD 45. And of course, James is leading the church in Jerusalem, you remember? Um, and so James has such leadership in the church that in Acts chapter 15, in the midst of Peter and Paul, James is going to lead this great discussion about Gentiles being brought into the faith. And so we see that James has uh, got high leadership in the church. He's a great man of righteousness. He's called, I've taught you this before, we'll talk about it again later. He's called Camel Need James sometimes in church history because he spent so much time on his knees and his elbows in prayer that his knees and elbows were deformed. Uh, they were worn down. And so he's this very interesting uh, man who loves, loves the Lord deeply and has this unique um, advantage of being the half-brother of Jesus. 
James 1.1. Let me read you our verse, and then I'm going to spend some time trying to expose why I think it's important that we recognize this theme that we miss in our day. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We said this when we studied the book of Jude. Remember, I don't know why I feel the need to tell you this again, but remember that James's name is actually Jacob. There's an issue in, uh, we're taking his, his name and bringing it to Latin and then bringing it to English and we're getting the name James. But in actuality, his name was Jacob and his brother Jude's name was driven from Judah. Um, Mary's name was Miriam, as in the sister of Moses. So they're a thoroughly Jewish family. And James, this thoroughly Jewish man, is leading the church in Jerusalem, which imagine this, they're Jewish. And he opens by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not going to argue for his apostleship or his authority on the basis of his biological connection to Christ Jesus, he's going to argue for his authority. The reason you should listen to him, the reason you should pay attention to his life is because he is a doulos of God. That's the Greek word, doulos. It can be translated as servant, bond servant, or slave. Most, most might be strong. Many commentators, and I'm actually in line with this vein, believe that our translations prefer servant or bondservant because the word slave sits very funny in our hearts because of the transatlantic slave trade. And rightly so. The slavery that existed in the West um, was um, beyond evil, was gross. Um, but when they used this word, it's very likely that what they meant was slave. So James introduces himself as James, a slave of Christ Jesus, a bondservant is still communicating the idea of slavery as belonging to someone, not having rights, not having possessions, but your life fully belonging to someone else. So James says, James, not the biological half-brother of Jesus. I've told you my theories before. I believe that James was probably the closest to Jesus in, uh, in age. We see in Mark chapter 6, um, a list of Jesus's brothers, uh, the family of Jesus. We're told that he has two sisters. There was James, uh, Judah, there was uh, Simeon, and, and, and a brother named Joseph. Um, but it's my theory. I don't have any proof of this. Um, I'm just right about things like this. It's probably what we should say. My theory is that James was, I, I'm assuming that because James had the most leadership in the early church, that he was very close with Jesus. Um, and again, he's going to call himself a slave of his biological half-brother, the, the, the slave, the bondservant of the Lord. Now, I was taught, um, and I was trained in the charismatic Pentecostal world, and I was taught very heavily that Jesus said in John fifteen fifteen, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know the will of his master but you know the Father's heart. You know the Father's will. And I was taught like repeatedly that we are not slaves. We are friends of God. We know we sang, I am a friend of God for 
way too long. Okay, just turn it off. I'm done with it. Um, not because the idea is not biblical. The song's just lame. Okay. Um, we sang that. We, we, we talked so much about friendship with God. And, and that really is a beautiful concept. But I want you to know that when Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, for a servant doesn't know, but I call you a friend. Just the line before in John fifteen fourteen, he said, you're my friends if you do what I command you. And he just said, just the line before it, he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And that, that's not even a threat. That's not even saying, like, to your wife, if you really love me, you'll do what I say. It's, that's just a simple matter-of-fact statement. Lovers of Jesus obey, period. And so for a long time, I think in the Western charismatic world, we've embraced ideas of friendship and sonship, and we should, but we've abandoned the foundation, which is lordship. And there's never a point in your Christian life where you mature beyond the master-servant relationship. Now, isn't it, I was told my entire, I shouldn't say that, that not everybody said that, maybe I just made it up. My, for, for years, I felt like it was reamed into me. You're not a servant. You're not a doulos. You're a friend. You're not a doulos. You're a friend. You're not a slave. You're a friend. You're a friend of God. Don't view yourself as a slave. But I want you to know that Paul called himself a slave more than anything else. And James now is going to call himself a slave. And every apostle in the New Testament, let's just do it because here we are. Second Peter verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter, a bondservant, a doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of course, history tells us that Peter ultimately was crucified upside down because he counted himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his master. When Peter called himself a slave of Jesus Christ, he meant that I am willing to die a cruel and violent death for my master. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus. Of course, Paul spent his whole life calling his life a drink offering. From one city to the next, beaten, stoned, hungry, tired. I love Acts 20. This is where Paul, he's saying farewell to the Ephesian elders. He meets them in Miletus, which is just a, uh, a, little, a little bit south of, of Ephesus. And he says this in 2024. They're crying. The elders are crying. Paul's saying, you're never going to see me again. It's getting close to the end of Paul's life. He says this in chapter 20, verse 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel and the grace of God. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to me. I just want to finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Of course, history tells us that Paul most likely loses his head in Rome. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy... Doulos of Christ Jesus, slave. So Timothy, too, is a slave of Jesus. Jude 1 1, Jude, the, the younger half brother of Jesus. Jude is a slave of Jesus Christ, a doulos of Christ Jesus and brother of James. Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his doulos, his slaves, his bondservants. The revelation was given to John to give to the slaves, the servants, the bondservants of Jesus Christ. 
So we can conclude that this is a theme or a concept that the early church thought a lot about. How did they, how did they identify themselves? How did they speak of themselves? We talk so much again about being, I'm a son, I'm a child of God. We teach our kids to say that, and it's beautiful. We truly are adopted into the family of God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But when's the last time someone in the church said, I'm a servant of my Lord? When's the last time we really relished in my slavery to Christ Jesus? So from here, what does slavery imply? What did the early church mean in calling themselves, again, every apostle calling themselves slaves of Jesus? What did they mean? MacArthur says that a doulos is a person who was literally owned by a master who could legally force him to work without wages. In other words, being a slave means I have no rights. All of my rights have been forfeited. My master has final authority over my life. My master has final and total authority over my life. Of course, in the early church, the concept of slavery arises from the will of a man. And so it is, it is saying um, that bond servants particularly choose to serve a master. And so we used to talk a lot about this idea in Exodus that a slave who wants to continue to serve a master could come and have a ear, their ear pierced against the doorpost. There, there is this idea that from the will of man that you can choose or surrender, we willfully desire to be a slave. There's a distinction between forceful slavery, which we see in the Western world, and this willful surrendering sacrifice in order to serve Messiah. And that's what we see in the early church. So Didymus the Blind was a fourth century teacher. He said this, those who seek worldly glory display the qualifications which they think they have in their correspondence. In other words, those who seek worldly glory, when they write a letter, they list their qualifications. Every, every person with a PhD is going to make sure you see PhD in the front of their name. He says, but the apostles boast at the beginning of their letters that they are slaves of God in Christ. In other words, the apostles willfully choose to obey the master out of love, and then they boast in their slavery. The greatest joy, privilege, sign of, of, of authority and dignity in their life is this, I'm a slave of Jesus. Ecumenius, a later commentator, said, more than any worldly dignity, the Lord's apostles glorified in the fact that they were slaves of Christ. More than any worldly dignity, the apostles glorified in the fact that they were slaves to Christ. So slaves willfully lose their rights. They surrender their future deliberately. They serve the master with great joy because he is worthy. What does it mean to deliberately surrender your rights? You're Westerners. You've got to have rights. And you live in the South by God. What does it mean for, for a believer to say, I have no rights? It means that I have to go where he tells me to go. 
There's no picking and choosing what region seems beautiful or where's a nice place to make my life. Believers don't get to choose the places that feel secure or safe. Believers willfully put their physical bodies at risk at times, time and time again, in order to simply obey instruction. It means that I don't choose the place that I go. I don't choose the people that I serve. I go where he calls me. Slaves must say what he requires them to say. We have a great problem in American Western preaching and picking and choosing what doctrines seem attractive to our modern culture. I don't get to pick and choose what doctrines might make you feel good about yourself. I didn't write the thing. Slaves say what the master has said. The doulos must utter his word, his gospel, his standard of holiness. I don't get to ignore matters of sexuality because it's uncomfortable. I must say what he has commissioned us to say. When he tells us to call the nations to the waters of baptism and repentance, it's what we're called to do. We don't abandon the message of repentance because it makes modern, western, prosperous people uncomfortable. I don't really care what makes you uncomfortable. I'm a slave. Those who feel that it's in their power to pick or choose what they say are not laboring under the instruction of the master. And when you choose to not labor under the instruction of the master, and you begin to pick and choose and decide what message is worthy of your time, or what people group um, are, is comfortable for you, when you get there, you are now your own God. And you make really crappy gods, just so you know. I'm not supposed to say that word in the pulpit. Many may look like Christians, dress like ministers, speak all the Christianese. But if they're unwilling to give the message that the master has called us to give, they are not slaves. Slaves bend to Christ's values. I want you to hear me say this. We're going to talk about this a lot in the book of James. Slaves bend to Christ's values. Jesus told us to take care of the poor. Period. If you give a little one a cup of water in my name, it won't be forgotten. When Paul went to the apostles, he tells us this in Galatians, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship, the apostles John and Peter and James, they gave him the right hand of fellowship and said that his gospel was true. Paul says, The only thing they asked of me was to not forget the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I don't get to choose what I value. I have to hear what matters to Christ's heart and respond to that. The apostles, the slaves of Christ, said, Nah, you got your doctrine right, Paul. Make sure you don't forget the poor. Paul says, Exactly what I was eager to do. Where is that value? in the body of Christ, in our nation. To look after the orphan and the widow. James the just is going to beat us over the head with this. I've said, and we'll get into this as we go, that there's no reason why there should be any child sitting in a group home in our region. There's way too many mansions around here. 
Jesus says when we throw a feast, we should invite those who can't pay us back. The Good Samaritan message was to us. We're to lift up the sick and the downtrodden and to care for them with no expectation of being rewarded. Why? Because our master said so. His values, holiness, must matter to the church. Does holiness still matter to us? The church needs to get back to guarding our hearts and being ensured that we're not lured away into temptation. I read this week of Samson being uh, greatly, the scripture says he was greatly annoyed by Delilah's nagging him to tell him where his strength came from. I was reminded this week of Lot. The scripture says that Lot was a righteous man whose soul was vexed because he lived amongst the people of Sodom. His conscience grew seared so much so that he tries to give his own daughter to be raped by angry men. When your value is Christ's value, which is holiness, Christ values holiness and love, then I refuse to surround myself with the, the annoying voice of culture, which is calling me to abandon my strength, which is calling me to abandon my Lord. What are you surrounding yourself with? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Slaves have no free time. So many times, Christians, we sit on our butts when we get home waiting for bed and we just put on whatever we want on the TV because it's our free time. All my time must be his. Do some repenting this week. All my time must be his. That doesn't mean that Christ doesn't command of us to rest, right? Like rest is beautiful and healthy, but I must rest in ways that honor him. A slave has no property. Your money is his money. Your home is his home. Your resources don't belong to you. We become stewards on his behalf. But again, there are too many Christians in the West living by Western values and not Christ-like values. What are we doing with our money? Does it really belong to Christ? Are we really living in generosity, ready to sow in order to see the kingdom come? Are you just sitting around hoping your pockets get fatter and fatter? Storing up wealth, this is James's word, you're storing up wealth for yourself, like a, like a, for the day of slaughter, like a calf being prepared for the day of slaughter. Our homes cannot become our personal sanctuaries. I'm as introverted as anyone in the room, I promise you. I get it. We have to be willing to embrace a little hospitality, serve people who are hurting, get outside of our selfishness in order to fully obey our master. From here, we could go on on what it means to be a slave but from here, I, I want to show you this simple point, and I think it's meaningful. Anointing and authority actually finds its roots in slavery. When the apostles say, we are slaves, they're saying, my life belongs fully to him, and what I say and what I do, 
I say and do on his behalf. When we lack authority to rebuke demonic spirits, it probably starts with the fact that we're not under the authority of the master. When I say go in Jesus' name, I am not speaking on my own behalf. I am the extension of the voice of my master. When I preach and the message I give is flat and unproductive and I try it for my own zeal and energy to make you feel something and all that happens is deadness, it's probably because I am not fully submitted to carrying his message. But when the anointing of the Holy Ghost sweeps over a room and convicts hearts and changes us, it's probably because the message is from the mouth of the master. So many churches today, ministries today, who are hoping to look like the world so that the world would be comfortable. And we're, we're exchanging entertainment for anointing. And we've got to get back to the place where we just want to hear his voice. I, don't, I, I just don't care how trendy the pastors or preachers dress. I just don't care how articulate you are if all you're articulating is rubbish. Give me the word of the master. May my life bow to the word of the master. So when the apostles stand to preach, stand to give their message, they say, you better listen because I am a slave of Jesus. In other words, these words come from the mouth of the master. The prophet is called to be a mouthpiece for God, not one who spouts their own political agendas for God's sake, called to express the heart of God. Churches that learn the lesson of doulos, of slavery to Christ, stand and preach in the power of the Spirit. Evangelists that are slaves call the world to repentance and faith in Christ and see God move in great power. The apostles say, our apostleship is ultimately grounded in our slavery. Now again, of course, James is the, the younger half-brother of Jesus. And interestingly, throughout this book, we're going to actually find that he quotes Jesus directly on many occasions. I think that James, I've told you this before, I think James heard Jesus pray. I think James used words. I think his vocabulary was Jesus-like. You know how it is when you grow up in the home with someone. you got the same little idioms. I think people see James in the street and see a resemblance to Jesus. They remember Jesus' physical body. James has every right, and logically, it would make sense to stand in this letter and say, I know him better than you know him. Listen to me. But rather, he says, I am his slave. I love him. I belong to him. I will wring out my life in order to serve him. Every ounce of me will be poured out as an offering before his feet. I have no rights. I have no agendas. I have no property. I have no plans. I have one aim to please my master. And I've told you this story before, but let's do it again, and we'll probably do it a hundred more times before I die, okay? But again, James in his public life was known as James the Just. 
He was known for his holiness. He's going to call us to holiness over and over. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that he was murdered around the 60s. Eusebius, who was an early church historian, actually the first church historian who tried to give a good account, he said this. This is from Eusebius. The scribes and Pharisees therefore placed James upon the pinnacle of the temple. And they cried out to him and said, You just one, in whom we should all have confidence. For as much as the people are led astray after Yeshua, Jesus, the crucified one, declare to us, What is the gate of Yeshua? He answered with a loud voice, Why do you ask me concerning Yeshua? the Son of Man. He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of great power and is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. And when many were fully convinced and glorified in the testimony of James and said, Hosanna to the Son of David, these same scribes and Pharisees said again to one another, We have done badly in supplying such testimony to Yeshua. But let us go up and throw him down in order that he may be afraid to believe him. And they cried out saying, Oh, oh, the just man, James, is in error. And they fulfilled the scripture written in Isaiah. Let us take away the just man because he's troublesome to us. And therefore they shall eat the fruit of their doing. So they went up and they threw down the just man from the pinnacle of the temple and said to each other, let us stone James the just. So they throw him down from the pinnacle of the temple, but he doesn't die from the fall. For he was not killed by the fall, he turned and knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And while they were stoning him, one of the priests of the sons of Rechab, who are mentioned by Jeremiah the prophet, cried out saying, Stop, what are you doing? The just one prays for you. And one of them, who was a fuller, he took a club, which he beat out clothes with, and he struck the just man on the head. And thus he suffered martyrdom, and they buried him on the spot by the temple, and his monument still remains by the temple. So James the just is brought to the pinnacle of the temple, and they essentially say, renounce Yeshua, renounce Jesus. And James says, he's seated at the right hand of God coming on the clouds of heaven, quoting Daniel 7. They push him off the temple. He rolls on his face and prays, Father, forgive them. Why does he pray that? Because his master prayed it. Unforgiveness is actually not an option. As he prays, some get scared and say, he's a righteous man. I wouldn't stone him. So another takes a stick that you beat clothes out with and bashes his brains, kills him on the spot. I'm suggesting that as we study this letter, which again is going to call us to holiness over and over, I'm suggesting that we start by trying to recover what the apostles meant when they called themselves slaves of Jesus. I'm asking you to examine your heart and consider whether or not you're your own God. What does it mean to be fully His? What does it mean to surrender all to the Master? 
May our rising and lying down at night be devoted to him. Our resources must be his. Our energy, our affections must solely be devoted to him. We must go where the master tells us to go. We must say what the master tells us to say. We must value what Christ Jesus values. The apostles stand and they say, I have no rights. I have no plans. I have no ambitions of my own. I am fully submitted to the lordship of Jesus. I think when the church finds this truth again, maybe we'll know something about the power and anointing of the spirit. I want to love him enough to give all that I have. Let's pray over the word. We'll step into a time of ministry. Lord, in Jesus' holy name, would you lead us to repentance? Would you lead us to surrender? Lord, would you raise up in this house lives who can say confidently, I'm a living sacrifice unto Jesus. Lord, we thank you for sonship. Oh God, we thank you for sonship. We thank you for friendship. We bless your name for it. Lord, would you help us to recover what it means to be a servant of the Most High. May this church be marked for many days ahead by the concepts of slavery to Jesus. Lord, may those who are putting off the call of God on their lives, those who are resisting the unction of the Spirit, would they be led to repentance? Would you sift our hearts, God? Sift me. Sift me, Lord. I give you all of me, Lord. Lord.